Morning. Oh, what a great, uh, what a great setup for our time. Really, the highlight of our service is is the Word of God, but the uh, the music and the communion and all of that just prepares our hearts. And uh, it's a delight to be with you again today. If ever you're playing the game of Jeopardy, and I question comes up about, you know, what two books are now divided, but they used to be one. You can get the answer by Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah was one book, is one book, and, uh, and, uh, but it's been separated. So today, we're going to get a chance to look at, at Ezra just briefly. The man Ezra showed up in Jerusalem before Nehemiah. And Ezra enters the stage in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, and he's there to instruct the the great assembly of people, and the response of the people is just incredible. But he arrived before Nehemiah, so when Nehemiah showed up with his great caravan, it would have been Ezra who would have greeted him at the the gate and, and shook his hand and welcomed him to Jerusalem. So today we're going to look at the back story of why Ezra enters the storyline in chapter 8 of Nehemiah. So take your Bible and let's go to chapter 7 of Ezra. Chapter 7, the last two verses, and then I'll jump into chapter 8 of Ezra. So we're in the book before, the one that we've been studying in in Nehemiah. So we're going to look at the, the book prior to it. Ezra chapter 7, verses 27 and 28, and then I'll jump to chapter 8 of Ezra, verse 21. But it it closes chapter 7 of Ezra with these words, blessed be the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who put it into the king's mind to glorify the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and who has shown favor to me before the king, his counselors, and all his powerful officers. So I took courage because I was strengthened by the hand of the Lord my God, and I gathered Israelite leaders to return with me. That's important because that's really the direction that Ezra was going. He was going to return back to Jerusalem with a great company of people. Let's jump into chapter eight, beginning in verse 21. It says, I proclaimed a fast by the Hahava River so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us, our dependents and all our possessions. I did this because I was ashamed to ask the king for infantry and cavalry to protect us from enemies during the journey, since we had told him, the hand of our God is gracious on all who seek him, but his fierce fierce anger is against all who abandon him. So we fasted and pleaded with our God about this, and he was receptive to our prayer. I selected 12 of the leading priests, along with Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their brothers. 
I weighed out to them the silver, the gold, and the articles, the contribution for the house of our God that the king, his counselors, his leaders, and all the Israelites who were present had offered. I weighed out to them 24 tons of silver, silver articles weighing 7,500 pounds, 7,500 pounds of gold, 20 gold bowls worth 1,000 gold coins and two articles of fine gleaming bronze as valuable as gold. And then I said to them, you are holy to the Lord and the articles are holy. The silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord God of your ancestors. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the Lord's house before the leading priests, Levites, and heads of the Israelite families in Jerusalem. So the priests and the Levites took charge of the silver, the gold, the articles that had been weighed out to bring them to the house of our God in Jerusalem. We set out from the Ahava River on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. We were strengthened by our God and he kept us from the grasp of the enemy and from ambush along the way. So we arrived at Jerusalem and rested there for three days. On the fourth day, the silver, the gold, and the articles were weighed out in the house of our God into the care of the priest Merimoth, the son of Uriah. Eleazar, son of Phinehas, was with him. The Levites, Jazabed, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Binuai, were also with them. Everything was verified by number and weight, and the total weight was recorded at that time. The exiles who had returned from captivity offered burnt offerings to the Lord, uh, the God of Is- to the God of Israel, 12 bulls, For all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, along with 12 male goats as a sin offering, and all this was a burnt offering for the Lord. They also delivered the king's edicts to the royal satraps and governors of the region west of the Euphrates so that they would support the people and the house of God. Great enterprises often begin with an idea, an idea. There was a notion or a mental picture that God put into the mind of Ezra that blossomed over time from an idea to a sense of calling and a purpose. And this idea that Ezra had must have sounded crazy to people to travel 1,500 miles with families, moms and dads and boys and girls and grandmas and grandpas, and to take this whole company 1,500 miles through this bandit-infested territory and travel with a a demanding exertion and effort that was required, as I'm sure many of them walked the entire way and traveled back. But Ezra sensed 
that God had called him to this. And, and it started with an idea, but it grew into an important work. So from an idea, it, it, it probably began to kind of morph into a, a burden and a sense that, that I need to do this. It was a charge that God had placed upon him, like a vision, a calling, we would call it. And so Ezra showed an extraordinary boldness and a bravery to do what many would have run away from, to, to, to lead this company of people through, as he talks about, bandit-infested territory where they would pounce upon these caravans in order to rob them and perhaps to kill. And he knew the territory that he would be traveling through. Now, it started with an idea. And, and I wonder within the group that we have here today, has God put an idea in your mind that, that is an assignment that he has for you, and he has placed you in the neighborhood where you are for a purpose. He's put you on that campus and among those classmates for a reason, and you're there for a purpose. It's bigger than just an education and a diploma. You're there for something, something more. It's a purpose. You're within a community or a circle of friends or coworkers, maybe within your extended family. And you're there for a purpose and a, and a reason. And God has been pressing upon you an idea, an idea. And this idea, you just can't shake it off. You can't escape from it because there's a, a sense of duty that I need to do this. I need to act upon this. And there's a need. You see the need, and it confronts you. You think about it in the middle of the night. You wake up, and it's there on your mind, and, and it feels as though God has put his hand upon your shoulder, and he's saying to you, now's the time. It's time to act. Let's do this. Let's do this together. In Daniel 11:32, Daniel prophesies about a future generation from the time that he lived, and he looks ahead to a time when the Jewish people would be living in their land, but they would be dominated by a tyrant. His name was Antiochus IV. And he was like a foreshadow of what Jesus referred to as the one who would have the abomination of desolation. So Antiochus, in many ways, was like a, a prototype of, of the Antichrist. That was his personality. He was very vicious. He was a blasphemous man who desecrated, as the abomination of desolation means. He desecrated and polluted the temple and, and, and contaminated everything. And he put pressure on the Jews to conform to his ideas. And many of them caved in. And they just went along to get along. 
But Daniel prophesies and he says that in that future day, while there are many of these Jews that are going to just go along with Antiochus's, uh, his, his, his rules, his laws, Daniel goes on to say, but, but the people who know their God will stand firm and take action, Daniel eleven thirty two. This is a group of people who knew who they were. And they knew why they were there and what they were supposed to be doing. They understood this. It's, um, it's the reason that they act so boldly and, and had such bravery is because they knew who they were and what their role was. William Carey, William Carey is the father of modern missions. And William Carey operated with the motto, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And, and this is the stuff that Ezra was made of. He's the one who operated like William Carey did, and he took these bold risks the person that is happiest and most satisfied is the one who can say, I know who I am and I, I know why God has put me on this earth. Do you know that? There is something so satisfying to understanding your identity and your purpose because a great many people that we work around or we go to school with or we live nearby, they don't have that. And they search for it. And, and some of them, you know, they, they hit around 18, 19, 20 years of age and they, they think, well, I'll go to the university because there I'm going to find what I'm searching for, who I am and why I've been placed upon this earth. And then they take some courses and maybe they hit a little philosophy or the, something else and they graduate and they think, I'm more confused now than I was before I started. And then they go on and they think to themselves, well, it's going to be in a career. I will gain a reputation and advancement and I will be successful, but that doesn't seem to fill it either. And so they go on and they say, well, maybe it's marriage or a family. I'll, I'll raise a family and there I'll find satisfaction. And then they move on to a cause. If I, if I wanna make, I'm gonna make a difference in this world, they say to themselves. So I'm gonna take up this cause, and a lot of celebrities do that. They attach themselves to that. But these people who are searching for those answers to the question, who am I, and why, why have I been put on this earth, they, they, they leave empty and they are agitated by all of this and there seems like a hole that's in their lives. It's what Augustine said, that God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. Who are you? The Jewish leaders asked of John the Baptist. And John answered, I am a voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He could have said, I know who I am. I'm a voice, been called by God as a voice. And I understand my role in this world. 
Now, as a Christian, as I hope that the vast majority of us are here today, it tells us in 1 John 3, 1, that see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are, boom, exclamation point. That is what we are. It's a happy blessing for the Christian to be able to look at his or her life in terms of understanding who they are. I am a child of God. And then the scripture adds to that in Ephesians 2.10 something about what we're created to do. You are created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. To know, to know that these assignments have been already prearranged by God. He's got them already on his calendar. They're already there, and they're for you. They get your name written on them. But it's not just the assignment that he gives to us, but he gives us our personality and our skill set and the training and the life experience and the ability and then he gives us his own presence and his promises. And that gives us a bravery and a focus to be able to march ahead and to do so with a sense of duty and purpose. Because we can say, I am on mission for God on my campus or in my community or in my extended family. I'm on mission for God. Now, chapter seven closes, as I read, with this excerpt from Ezra's diary. And he, he wrote, I took courage, and I, and I gathered leaders from Israel to go with me. And, and so what's the ground of his courage? What's the basis of his courage? Did he just, you know, as they say, you reach deep inside and you find that. Is that what he did? Or, or is there something more reliable and stronger than just the fickle human willpower? No, I think what we see here within these verses that I read are at least four underpinnings for courage that I want to, to, for us to consider this morning. And, and these can be yours too because what God calls us to do oftentimes feels like a big risk. We're stepping out and it's in unknown territory. And, and sometimes we just feel like, man, am I the right person for this? And so what is the underpinning that gives us courage in the face of that, in the face of those doubts? Well, the first of these is, is what I've been talking about, but let me, let me say it in a, in a phrase here, and that is the underpinning of an unshakable conviction that God has indeed called me. I have been called. It's a vocation. And, and we see in Ezra a man who knew God and knew his assignment, and he was absolutely assured of this, and this is required, especially in the occupation and the vocation, I should say, that I've had for, um, for over four decades as, as a pastor. 
And, um, and that is, a, a, apart from a calling, let me tell you, I wouldn't have done this. There's just no way. There's a point in the, in the whole history of my life that my wife turned to me and says, you know, maybe you ought to get out of this. Maybe you could teach. Maybe, maybe there's a university somewhere you could teach. Yeah, you know, I could, but... I don't feel like I've been called to do that. I've been called to be a pastor. And so I stuck with it in the face of some real difficult times. But a calling, you see, it was that that kept me focused like a laser. And it gave me a path to walk and a sense of duty and purpose. So how do we know that the vision or the idea that God has planted in our mind is really from him and not just some invention that we made up in our own head? How do we know the difference between that? Well, how do we determine if God has indeed called us to action? I got three short bang, bang, bang. I'll hit them two real quick here. The first is to identify and determine if there's really a need. Ezra learned that the temple had been built back in Jerusalem. This is that second temple under Zerubbabel, and they rebuilt that temple. But, but the people living there, you know, they say, well, we got the building, but now do we, what do we do? And so they lack the training. They lacked somebody to come along and show them how to worship. They lacked their knowledge of God's law. And so Ezra was a qualified teacher. Back in chapter seven, verse 10, it says, now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, and teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. This guy spent a good deal of his life doing nothing but studying the Bible. And so he was well qualified as a teacher and he learned these people over there, they got nothing. They don't know what they're doing. And they don't know God's law. They're kind of groping through life. There's a big need. So that's the first thing. Is there a need, this sense, this idea that you have? Secondly, we examine our motives. Why am I doing this? Am I seeking first the kingdom of God or are, am I seeking a name for myself? And then thirdly, we look for some confirming evidences that God has indeed called us. Confirmations. Now, was there any hints, any evidences at all that God had called Ezra to do this and that he didn't invent this in his own mind? Well, certainly. Back in chapter seven, uh, in verses 11 through 13, it's King Artaxerxes that actually urges him to go. And he said, and Artaxerxes says, this is Artaxerxes, the king said, I issued a decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including their priests and Levites, who wanted to go to Jerusalem may go. And so he gave like a green light. Whoever wants to go, go. And, and Ezra, you can lead them. And this came from the king. And so this is an evidence. 
and it, we, he was very agreeable to this. And so we find in, in chapter seven, verse 27, praise be to the God, the, the, the Lord, the God of our ancestors who put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So he said, this is a confirmation that I just didn't invent this idea. This is from God. And God is the one who put the king in the frame of mind to get behind Ezra's idea, his vision, so that his motives, his motives, Ezra's motives were pure. Now, what were the motives of Artaxerxes? Well, I don't know. They could be political. I mean, when you get to that place, usually you're asking yourself, how will this benefit me? Politicians do this all the time. How will this benefit me? And he could have reasoned that, well, you know, it'll kind of stabilize the area, less uprisings, and so he sent Ezra with this assignment. Proverbs 21.1 tells us that in the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels toward all who please him. So what Ezra was seeing as far as evidence is is that God is moving and he's the one opening doors and he's smoothing out the path for me to go back to Jerusalem and to lead this great company of people. There was a clear heaven-sent calling that instilled a boldness and a bravery and that's what we need. Do you lack courage then think about it. Has God called you to what he, what's before you? What's on your plate? What's he calling you to do? And do you feel emboldened by that? But the second underpinning is not just a clear calling that he instills in us, but also a, a seeking the Lord through fasting and prayer. When we fast and when we pray, something happens and the inner being that gives us courage. And so we find in verse 21 of, of, of chapter um, eight there that he, he proclaims a, a fast. And he says, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children and all of our possessions. Courage arises when we seek the Lord and we commit our way to the Lord. It says that in Psalm 37, 5 and 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. And that's what fasting does. There's a lot of value in fasting and some within this room probably say, you know, I've never done that. I've never fasted about anything except when I had the flu. But that wasn't really what I wanted. But I've never fasted for a purpose. Well, I would ask you to consider doing that. If God has called you and you have an idea that's been planted and it has grown and blossomed into a sense of, of purpose and duty, then fast and pray about that. Because fasting is useful in putting us in a frame of mind of our creatureliness, that I am a creature before the great God who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. But I am merely a creature and I am in need. Fasting puts us in that frame of mind. It reminds us who we are. 
Secondly, fasting enables us to do what Jesus said. And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So fasting humbles us and we begin to put to death our ego. We put to death the things that we, we think as our preferred methods. You know, I got this idea and I know how it should be done. Really? Well, maybe you need to die to that and submit that and subordinate that to the Lord. Fasting also strips us of pride and boasting. We get an idea, we get a sense of calling, and before long, we think, you know, I can do this. I got the know-how, I have the ability, I have the network of people and the experience. No, 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 we need to fast and pray in order for us to see something of the poverty of our spirit and our nakedness, and our neediness. And then we also, in fasting, begin to see Jesus Christ and his all-sufficiency, that he provides what I lack, and he's the answer to those, to those questions and those needs. So if you've not considered fasting, then do so. Maybe it's just one meal a week, and you say, in lieu of that meal, I'm gonna spend the time before God in meditation and prayer and just looking to him. So another underpinning, the third one that we find here is also, um, and this is what gives us courage, is this like-minded, fully devoted believers who join us. Uh, these are people who are, who are fully engaged. Uh, they have bought into this. And they believe that God has, has called them to join us in this. A large portion of chapter eight of Ezra, the first 20 verses is mostly names. And these are names of families that went back to, uh, to Jerusalem from Babylon and he lists them. And these are recorded as, as family units, as groups, moms and dads and you got Represented here, boys and girls and teenagers and grandmas and grandpas, and they're all, they're all here in these, these names. But what, what, what Ezra didn't see on this roster is he's looking down through the names and he said, you know what's not here? There aren't any Levites. Where are the Levites? Because the Levites were the ones who were responsible for the duties of the temple. Here they are going back with all of these articles. You see, well, where are the people that are gonna, who have the responsibility to lead in worship? How come they're not here? And so in verse 18, he's looking for capable men. He puts the word out to the leader of the Levites and says, can you arrange for some Levites to join us? Because they're not here. And certainly he did, and, uh, and, and they're mentioned here. And this, this group that was called to go um, emboldened Nehemiah. So we're in this together. These are like-minded people. One thing that, that Nehemiah required, if you are going to go back with me, and you're gonna be especially a Levite, then he required a holy integrity. 
He wanted to have the, the A-plus blue ribbon people who could be counted upon as having integrity and honesty. And they were nothing less than the people of God, called to the work of God, done the God's way, and so he set the bar really, really high. I wonder how many may have signed up and he said, I don't think so. You're not going with us. Only those who had integrity. And you can see then verse 28 that he said to these who, who were agreeable to go, you are holy to the Lord. You're consecrated unto him. And the articles, these things that we're taking back, the silver and the gold and the, and the articles, these are also holy to the Lord. And so what he was calling for was integrity, that, that what they claimed to believe, they also lived it out. That's what integrity means. They belong to the Lord. And he was looking for people who had the right doctrine, but also the right practice to go with it. Because you and I both, we know, don't we, of people who have all kinds of right doctrine. And if they took an exam, a theology exam, they could probably get an A on it. But then you look at their life and say, that's a train wreck. What's going on there? They got all the right answers, but they don't live it out. And, and, and Ezra said, you're not going with us unless you have the right doctrine and the right life to back it up. And he modeled it himself. And he, he explains, because this is in the first person. Uh, this is written by him. He says, I did this. And what he did is he, he weighed out and he counted every single gold coin or silver coin and weighed out everything. And he tells us, to the very ounce, he had it all weighed out in order that it would be accounted when they arrived, so that when they did arrive, it was all on the, on the sheet and everything agreed. Okay, it all got here. A man of integrity. God is a God of purity and light and honesty, he does not lie, and he expects us to act the same way. And so when a group of Christians, say a company like here at Legacy, are like-minded and we join together in a good work, and we ensure that everything that we do at Legacy is done honorably, then God's blessing follows because there are train wrecks out there. And you're saying, what happened there? Well, I'll tell you what happened. There was a lack of integrity. Something broke down somewhere. You know, the three big temptations, money, sex, and power. Something happened. And, and they, they lost their way. So are you, are you praying in this idea that God has put in your mind and you're saying, I need others to join me in this? Would you pray for two or three or, or maybe even a larger company of people who would go with you? Paul had his, and he describes them in his letters. And every once in a while, he'll mention a name. He had Silas. He had Luke. He had Timothy. He had a whole bunch of them that are listed in Romans 16. There's a whole group of them. And then Tychicus. Ephesians 6 and, 
Epaphroditus and Philippians, and all of these people were people of integrity. And he said they were like-minded in, in the work that God had for the Apostle Paul. How about you? Now, number four, we'll move ahead. Number four, the, the fourth underpinning that gives us courage is that we reflect, we reflect upon the past faithfulness of God. The God of Ezra is our God too. There's a reason why this is in the Bible. For you and for me to, to read this and to understand that this is the same God that we serve and, and we look at, at how he operated and how he moved behind the scenes. And as I said, this is, this is Ezra's personal account. This is all written in the first person pronoun. I did this. No, I saw the, to this. And, and so we're reading his diary just like we're reading the diary of Nehemiah, as I've, I've mentioned in the past. It's his journal. It's what he witnessed, what he saw. And we see that Ezra's God was working and, it, and he doesn't ever hesitate to give the Lord the credit. In fact, I counted in one, two, three, four, five, six times, he says the gracious hand of our God was on us. He's always given the credit to the Lord. God placed all of these circumstances in, in his life and he recorded them. And as we reflect upon the faithfulness of God and we think, that's the same God that I serve. Now, one of the tasks I think that is helpful for us is if you're not a journal guy or, or woman and you don't really like to write, at least you can do it mentally. And that is that we need to record or we need to recall the times when we saw God's faithfulness to us. We need to work hard at this. Work hard to remember God's faithfulness because they will serve us well in the future when we go through those periods of drought and trials, circumstances that cast doubt into our minds. And we need bravery. Uh, we need boldness. And in the face of opposition, we need to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So it's this. So these are the four underpinnings. First, an unshakable conviction that God has truly called us. Secondly, seeking the Lord through prayer and fasting. Thirdly, joined by fully devoted believers in a good work. Number four, reflect upon and learn from God's past faithfulness. So how about you? It isn't unusual, especially if, if you're young, especially around middle school, it's not unusual for a middle schooler to feel the call of God to something, some kind of vocation or something. They said, this is what God has for me. It happens in high school too. It happens as an adult. It happened for me when I was in college. I was on a track. I wasn't happy at all. And, and an idea came into my mind. I don't know when it happened probably sitting in the middle of a class, flunking a test. But an idea entered my mind, like, I shouldn't be doing this. I hate this. You know, maybe I should be a pastor. I, 
I like to study God's word. I, I, I do it all the time. I'm here at the university and I'm studying the Bible. I got a whole dormitory room of books. People come in and say, who is this guy? He's got Bible dictionaries and concordances and what is he doing here? Yeah, good question. What am I doing here? And then the idea was, well, maybe, maybe I should go in ministry. Well, I was gonna take the easy route, do something really simple. Youth ministry, pfft, that's, not, that's, that's not easy. <laughs> but I didn't know any better. So I'm thinking, I'll, you know, I said, the one thing I will not do is I will not be a preacher. Because I cannot see myself, you know, with a sermon every single week. I can't do that. I won't be a preacher. Guess what? <laughs> but that's, that starts with an idea. Has God planted an idea that he keeps bringing back to your attention and confirming it along the way? And you've been praying about it for about six, 12 months now and and you've shared this with a few people, and they're very agreeable with this. They confirm it with you, and you see evidences that God is preparing the ground and preparing you. So everything is in place. So why are you hesitant? Why don't you do it? Why don't you step out? What's holding you back? There are three reasons why we're held back. Usually it's it's uh, number one, we feel our inadequacies. This is what happened uh, with Jeremiah. He says, I don't know how to speak, Jeremiah 1.6, and I'm only a youth. So, you know, we tell ourselves, well, we don't have the right skill set for this, or I'm afraid of failure. So we feel our inadequacies, and for their, that reason, we resist, you know, acting. Secondly, you know, the assignment doesn't fit our plans. I got other plans. This is kind of interfering with my plan. This is interrupting what I want. This is the Jonah situation. I'm not gonna go there. I'm not going to those people. And then thirdly, another reason why we resist is that we claim it's too difficult. This is Gideon. He's looking out of the valley there with the Midianites. They had a swarm of locusts. They were that many and their camels were innumerable, and, uh, and, and he's feeling like, this is, this is way too difficult, and, and God, you're taking away all of my men. But, but if God is calling us, then let's not be kicking against the goads, because the happiest people on earth are those who know their God and know God's purpose for them. So if you agree with me that you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works and you do agree with me that he is the one arranging them for you, then ask the Lord to, 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 to direct you, to guide your steps. And, uh, and maybe, maybe it is that for some, the thing that you need to do today is you need to obey and believe in and submit yourself to God. And you do so by looking to and believing in his son, Jesus Christ, who willingly 
went to the cross as a substitute sacrifice, bearing our sin and bearing our judgment and the wrath that we deserved. So this was all poured out on his son, Jesus Christ, instead of us. And believing in him and embracing him as your savior. Maybe that's the idea that you've been thinking about for the last few months and you're here today. Today's the day, pull the trigger, let's do it. Make that step of faith. So in the closing moments, and I gotta wrap it up here. I got a clock back there, did you know that? It's a countdown clock. I'm already seven, eight minutes over. And so in the closing moments here, um, if God is speaking to your heart, then, um, then this is your invitation. Uh, listen to what Isaiah says, you know, here am I, send me. And grab a hold of the motto of, of William Carey, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Do that. Let's pray. Our God, as we um, have looked over this chapter, we've considered the man Ezra, and we see how you used him in a mighty way, and we're gonna be seeing that more in the upcoming chapter in Nehemiah, and what a remarkable teacher he was, and how you had this custom made for him. You have assignments custom made for individuals that are seated here today, and Lord, Plant that idea in their mind, and if you have already planted it, cause it to, to blossom and fertilize it and, and allow it to germinate in such a way that it, it just grows and grows and grows into a sense of purpose and duty and calling. And uh, use us, we pray, each of us, in the task that you have assigned us in the in the season of life that we may be in and the situation that we find ourselves. And however it might be, use us for your glory in Christ's name.